Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We continue our study this morning on the Master's plan of disciple-making. We walk our way through the Gospel of John, seeing how Jesus led those men to that point of commitment where they were ready to follow him with everything. When I arrived at Southwestern Seminary back in the early 1980s, uh, I, was, I thought I had an understanding of everything God had in store for me and my call to ministry. But as I got to the school and began to meet some of the students that were there, some of the professors, and see the magnitude of what was going to happen at that one of the largest seminaries in the world, and as guys began to share with me everything that was going to be required of me to make it through that four-year master's degree, I was overwhelmed. I thought I knew what I was getting into, but as it turned out, I was only getting a glimpse of what it meant to spend that much time in theological education. Well, Jesus' disciples are kind of at that place. They, they think they know what it means to follow him. They think they understand to, to come and be one of his disciples what it means, but they really don't. And in this passage in chapter 2, he gives them a glimpse of what, what's about to happen. Remember we said that in our disciple-making process, it begins with come and see, and then come and hear, and then come and be with me, and then come and remain. We're in that come and see phase right now where Jesus is giving them a glimpse into the reality of who he is and what he's called them to be and do. Chapter two in the book of John, listen as I read aloud. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus was there, and Jesus' mother was there. I'm sorry, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Let me just back up and talk about this for a minute. These are several days after Jesus has called these disciples, some of John's disciples, to to leave the ministry of John the Baptist, and then they've gone and brought others with them, and there's five of them with Jesus now, and and they come to this small town in Cana in Galilee, and it's a small village, and Jesus' mother has been invited to this wedding. The Bible says that Jesus and his disciples were invited there too. I I, I don't know this, but I think this. Probably they went to stop in Capernaum to visit uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, and and she says, by the way, I've got a a wedding to go to, and it's probably a family member of hers, and so uh, word gets out, and so, well, Jesus, you come with me. And then Jesus says, well, I've got these guys with me, and so probably, we'll bring them with you too. That's probably how it happened. They probably had permission, and they were invited, but I can just see the story unfolding that way. And they go to this wedding. The Bible says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, it was the tradition there that the bride would be escorted from her home to the home of the groom or the groom's father, and and that took place in a ceremonial time. There was music and all kinds of festivities, and they would have some things pronounced. They would sign a document, and they would be husband and wife, and then there would be this long, anywhere from three to seven to ten-day feast, and this is what we have here in Cana, this wedding feast. So as the proceedings are going on, and Jesus and his mother and his disciples, these early followers are with him, she comes to him and says, the wine has run out. And she's anxious about that. Again, I don't know this, but I think this. She may be anxious about this 
because they might have run out because she brought Jesus and his buddies with her. You never know. Have you ever been in a situation like that? If, if we hadn't shown up, they might not have run out. That may be what happened. But she comes to him and says, uh, they don't have any wine. It, it's, it's gone. And Jesus says to her, what has this concern of yours to do with me? And in other words, it's, it's said throughout the Gospels, uh, that phrase is used. He's just asking, how am I to be involved in this? Jesus always asks questions that he knows the answer to. And he says to her, by the way, he calls her woman. I wouldn't recommend you calling your mother that. When she, especially if she comes and asks a favor of you. What does that have to do with me, woman? But in, in that culture, that was an endearing term. That, that was something that, that some translations say, dear lady. Jesus used that term to refer to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection and then uh, to his mother at the cross even. So it, it's an endearing term, so it's not a, a bad thing. In that culture, it was good. So basically, he's asking her, why have you brought this concern to me? And look at what she says, what happens in verse, uh, verse 5. She says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. So she brings his need to Jesus, and then she says to the servants there, who were the ones passing out the, the wine for the wedding feast, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, we don't know that she knew what he was going to do. There's lots of speculation. Some say, well, Mary knew exactly what was going on, and it was time for Jesus to reveal himself and show himself to be Messiah with all his power and glory. I don't know that that's the case. Others say that Mary just was coming just to bring it, to say, Jesus, you can take care of this. Do something about it. And others, again, maybe she was anxious because it was her family that caused him to run out. We don't know. But she has this understanding that if she brings this need to Jesus, no matter what, he's going to take care of it. So no matter what the purpose and reason is there, that's a good place to be, isn't it? Even if you can't figure it out, just to bring it to Jesus, knowing he's going to take care of it, that's a good place to be. I like to be there. Now, the Bible says six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification, each containing 20 or 30 gallons. These water jars were what they would take water out and pour it over the guest's hands to, to purify ritually the ceremony for the feast. Verse 7, Jesus says, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after the people have drunk freely, the inferior. Implication when they can't be discerning enough to know what it is. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus tells them to draw that, to fill the jars with water, then to draw that out. In, in that culture, the wine was kept in a large container, and it was drawn out into another container, and then it was mixed with water, and then they would draw out of that to serve the guests. You go back and study the literature around the New Testament time, and it fits the context of all the words that are used for wine. This is a wine mixed with water that Jesus is dealing with here. The, the rabbis debated whether it was 20 parts water to one part wine or eight to ten parts water to one part wine pretty much the standard as you go through scripture and and you you look at the rabbinical literature it's three parts water to one part wine and whenever that word wine is used in scripture it's referring to water wine mixed with water when it's referring to wine alone it usually says unmixed wine so we believe that's what jesus had i don't believe it had anything any similarity except that it was from the grape that to the wine that we have today the alcoholic drink we have today it was just that culture, what they did to drink, water mixed with wine or wine mixed with water. So they do it. They, they, it it's just the same picture that they scoop it out into one bowl, it's mixed, and then they hand it to the guests, serve it to the guests. Look at verse 11. Jesus performed this first sign. That's significant that he uses the word sign and not miracle. In Cana of Galilee, 
He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Great story, great account, incredible miracle. We're going to walk through this now and and look at application from this passage as it has to do with us as disciple makers. Remember when we started this study, we said we're going to be going through these gospel accounts and we're going to be making application and look for principles for us as we make disciples. So let's look at those right now. Number one, we're to use everyday circumstances of life as we disciple others. We're to use everyday circumstances of life as we disciple others. Spend time with them. The Bible says that it was a couple of days after uh, there when Jesus called the disciples out as he's traveling to Galilee, walking along the road, and we went a couple of day journey, stopping and talking all through their, their uh, um, day, asking questions, <clears throat> interacting, and then they get there to Cana, and Jesus takes these disciples with him to the wedding. Why? Because he wants to teach them. He wants to use every circumstance of life. He wanted to be with his disciples. That's one of the key principles of disciple making. It's not just sit still while I instill. Fill out the blanks. That's good. I like that y'all fill out the blanks. That's not all. The, the discipler has to be with those that he disciples. And Jesus illustrates that throughout scripture in that walk and that time taking them and including them in the wedding. Um, look with me, hold that place in John, but look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We have some parenting principles here, and these parenting principles apply to disciple making. And I'd say it the other way, the disciple making principles also apply to parenting. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. God says you have to have a love relationship with God to be able to pass it on. So he says to parents in Deuteronomy 6, moms, dads, we're to love the Lord with our whole heart, everything we have, before we can pass it on to our kids. Then look with me at, at uh, verse um, 7. He says, these words are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. And look at this, this description of how you pass the life on to someone else. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them on a sign on your hand and let it be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, what we're to do as we pass our faith to our children, it's to be a part of our life. We talk about Jesus when we rise. Just like in the, in the video, when we lie down at night where she prayed, that, that's the way you parent. And when you walk along the road, that's how you disciple someone. It's the same as a parenting principle. That's what Jesus understood, to spend his life with his disciples, to live life with them. Can't tell you how many times as a pastor, uh, I'll be hanging out with someone, and, and they'll say, Pastor, I've, I've got a question for you. I always brace myself because I never know what it's going to be. Usually if it's a theological question, my response is, that's a good question. <laughs> Sometimes I know the answer, but I usually don't. But you know what happens? I realize that by being with that guy, by hanging out with those folks, they felt the comfort in the East to ask me those questions. You ever been with your kids and you go fishing with them or go hanging out with them, take them to the show, or we used to date our kids. Kelly would take Cameron on a date and I would take Carissa on a date from when the time they were little. And you hang out with them for an hour or two, and then they say, uh, Dad, I've got a question. Well, they just didn't think of that question usually. It's usually a question they've been thinking about for a long time. 
And my being with them gave them the, the freedom and the comfort to initiate a question. That's the way disciple-making takes place. You have to hang out with people. Use the circumstances of life. Number two, back in John chapter 2, Jesus did this and we need to do this. Demonstrate concern for others. Demonstrate concern for others. The Bible says that once Jesus was made aware of the need, he begins in verse 5, in verse 6, to take, go get the water, get the jars that have been set there, fill them with water, and then he turns the water into wine. Jesus is, is concerned about the needs of the people. Some have said that uh, there were two things that took place here. He calmed his anxiety of his mother because she said, we're out of wine. And he met the need that the people had, the couple had, to not be, disgra- to not be disgraced in front of the people. See, if you were the wedding couple in this small village and you ran out of wine at the wedding feast... That was a disgrace. That was a, something that would cause shame. So they would have entered into their married life with this a black cloud over them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bob and Jane, they're the ones that ran out of wine at the wedding. Remember that? Jesus didn't want that. It's a simple thing, but it would have been a big thing for them. He is concerned for the needs of others. He was people-oriented. Sometimes in our churches, we have a tendency to be program-oriented, to be project-oriented. Jesus was people-oriented. We had a man in our church one time, used to invite people to church all the time. Man, he was always inviting people. People would come to church just to get him off their back. They would tell me that. You know what? I came to church because he wouldn't leave me alone. But he would tell me sometimes, he would say, Pastor, see that couple right there? I invited them. They'll be good for our church. They make a lot of money. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll tithe. Well, I'm glad he invited them, but that's not the reason to invite somebody to church. That's not the reason to say, I'd like that person to be here for what they can do for us. I have friends and have been in situations where the attitude of the church was, we've got to get people so we can survive. Our church is dying, so we've got to get people in the seats or we're going to die. That's not the reason to get people in the seats. The reason to get people in church is because they're dying without Christ. It's not to keep the church alive. It's to get Christ into their lives. People, not programs, not projects. You ever been a project of someone? It's not a very good feeling, is it? Jesus didn't make anyone a project. They were all important to him. So the sovereign Lord of the universe who has come with this mission, the Bible says, to seek and to save that which was lost, is in this situation in a wedding. He could have said, you know what? Not my thing right now, but there's some needs here, and I'm going to meet those needs. Concern for people. There's an app out on the phone now. I've seen the commercial for one of the banks, in it, and it says you can do this with the app on your phone. You can, you can do mobile deposits. You can get your do transfers, all this stuff. It says, but the most important app of all, and it shows them push a button, they call a live person. And that's their big selling point. Not just that you can do all this electronic stuff, but there's a person involved. We would do good to to heed that. To say, you know what, it's not just all about the stuff we do around here. It's about the people that God's called us to reach. Demonstrate concern. When you disciple others, they need to see you being concerned about people. Number three, demonstrate flexibility. Demonstrate flexibility. Demonstrate flexibility. I said that several times for me, okay? That's me. 
If you're a, if you're a, a, a type A personality, if you're driven, if you're uh, what we call the beaver, you know, the beaver, otter, golden retriever, lion. If you're a beaver, if you, you, it's all about getting stuff done and you get your agenda, you get your plan, you need to be reminded like I do because that are me. I are one. Be flexible. Be flexible. Jesus was flexible. You know, he would, have, he would have been right within all standards of saying, that is not my problem and I will not do anything about it. This is a perfect moment for that person who invited the guest to figure out he didn't plan right, whatever. Jesus said, you know what? I, I, I'm going to be flexible and I'm going to help meet some needs of some people. You ever been on a mission trip and you had an agenda or a plan? You ever worked with kids or teenagers and you had an agenda or a plan and you get in the middle of it, you might as well just tear it up and go with the flow. One time I was uh, invited to go on a mission trip to Monterey, Mexico, and the family went down. The kids were little, and I was told, you're going to get to preach in one of these churches. Remember that, Cameron? And we were going to go preach in a church, and I thought, okay, the, the evangelist, uh, Rudy, who invited us, he's going to go with me and introduce me to the people, and, and it's going to be great. Well, that morning, we got up to go to church, and he says, you're going to go with them. Kelly, you're going to go with them. Chris, you're going Cameron, Kevin, you're going with these people. And I'm like, you're not coming with me? The evangelist who invited me? No, you're, you'll be fine. So I go and meet this couple. They can't speak English, and I can't speak much Spanish. So I get in their car with them, and we drive off into the wild blue yonder. Monterey's a pretty big city to be winding around, and I'm, we're trying to communicate, and so I'm thinking, I sure hope there's somebody at this church that can speak English. And we get there, and they start introducing me to people as best they can, and nobody speaks English. They're all very polite and gracious. And I said, this is not my plan. I did not plan this. So we get there. Okay, where's my interpreter? Nobody there. Finally, after I sat through a Sunday school lesson, which I understood very little about, I understood a little bit, but not much, finally, a lady walks in the door with someone, and she's looking like she's headed straight for me, and I said, oh, great, Lord, my interpreter. And she introduces herself in English. And I said, oh, wonderful. My, my plan is coming together now. And so just to be light and kind of lighten the, the situation, and, and I, I said, you know, I said, this will be interesting. I've never done this before. And she said, I haven't either. Not my plan. My first time preaching in a, a Mexican Baptist church, I didn't intend it to be that way. And she was a woman, so she couldn't be up here with me. They had her kind of in that culture, kind of separate. And there were times during the sermon where she just turned around and looked at me like this. Like, I got the message after two or three times that I don't know how to translate what you just said. So uh, we got through the story of Jonah somehow. And it, it wasn't pretty at certain places there because I had to go back and rephrase something because she couldn't understand it to interpret it. We got through and it was kind of awkward, but we did it. Not the way I'd planned it, but we got through. Well, there were some people that came forward and there was talk and stuff went on. I didn't know what happened. But after the service, she told me that that young man that came, he gave his life to Christ today. I said, that's the way it works, doesn't it? God says, Kevin, you have this plan. Just kind of be flexible. Watch me. I have another plan. I'm going to use you, not knowing how to speak Spanish, through an interpreter that doesn't really know how to interpret, in a situation where you're uncomfortable, and she was very uncomfortable, and I'm going to bring someone to Christ and get the glory. Isn't that great? That's the way God works. So those of us who have that mindset, be flexible. Demonstrate flexibility. Number four, point to the activity of God. Point to the activity of God. If you will look at verse 
Verse 11. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That word sign is chosen, it's a significant word. There are like seven or eight words in, in, the, in the Greek language for the word miracle. And as you go through scripture in the New Testament, you find all of those different words used. But John uses the word sign. He uses, I think, seven times for signs in John. And they're significant. They, what a sign is, and the, that word means not just a miracle, but a, a significant sign that points beyond the miracle to the person who performed the miracle and the character of the, of the one who performed the miracle. That's the sign. He says he displayed this sign so that he could display his glory. Jesus was pointing not to the miracle, not to the water into wine, but to the fact that he is Lord over creation. One, one scholar said it's as if the, the water just bowed down to Jesus and became wine. He didn't have to touch it or talk to it or anything. It just said, you're Lord of creation and I do what you say. Jesus pointed them. This whole glory given to God was what we've got to do when we disciple people. It is not about us. It is not about us. It is about leading people into a love relationship with God, nurturing them, growing them so that they can lead somebody else into a love relationship with God so they can be nurtured and grown and so forth. It is about, that is what it's about. That's the Great Commission. Go, we talked about this several weeks ago. Go and make disciples. Point people to Jesus Christ. If they're saying you're a wonderful teacher, you're a wonderful discipler, you're the most wise Christian they've ever met, be careful. Because you can begin to think it's all about you. Now, wouldn't it just be just like the enemy to take the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, and so distort it with our pride that it becomes about us? And not about pointing people to Christ. It happens. It happens all the time. When our kids were little, occasionally we'd play I Spy. We'd, we'd ask them, look for something that you see God doing and say, I spy. So they'd, they'd say, I spy a rainbow. God did that. Or I, I spy this. That's what we're to do. We're to be looking for the activity of God. We're to show those people we're discipling how God is at work and God is active. When I was with Cameron in, in Monterey preaching that day, I was able to show him my, my sermon wasn't that great. The translation sure wasn't that great. But look what God did. That, that, that boy got saved. That's what we do. You, you just become transparent. You say, it's not about me. It's about what God is up to. I love what Teddy Roosevelt used to do when he was president. He'd take his, his uh, dignitaries out on the back lawn at the White House, and they'd look up into the sky and look at all the stars and just stand there looking up silent for a long time till it became kind of awkward. And they're all just kind of looking around, why does the president have us doing that? And then he would say, gentlemen, I believe we're small enough now. We can go to bed. That's what God's called us to do, is to lead people to recognize and acknowledge the majesty and the glory of the God we worship so that we can understand how small we are and how great he is. Just close with uh, that great theologian, Mr. Miyagi, on Karate Kid. When he takes Danielson to teach him how to be the karate master, he shows up that morning and he's ready to go. And he, he first of all, he has this little interaction with him and, and, he, and he says to his pupil, Daniel, you'll do whatever I say, right? And Daniel wants to be the karate master, sure. He says, unquestioned, no matter what I say, you're going to do it. He says, sure. So he reaches in a bucket, brings a big sponge out, sets in his hand and says, wash the car. 
That's not, that wasn't his plan, was it? He wanted to be a karate master. Just wash the car. He said, and when you wash the car, after you wash the car, wax the car. He said, with your right hand, wax on. And with your left hand, wax off. Wax on, wax off. What in the world does that have to do with karate? So he waxes the car. You know what he learned? He learned that important move in karate to block the, the punch. See the theological truth there? Jesus starts with his disciples, these little basic steps. Just recognize that I'm here and I'm doing something. That's what we do when we disciple people. We don't, we don't unload the entire theological truth on them all at once. We take baby steps. And I don't know where you are in your waxing, but we got to be there. we got to show up for work. we got to say to the creator of the universe who has saved you, I'm reporting for duty, and I want to be a part of making disciples for your glory. Pray together.